Welcome to the April 20th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, treatment and outcomes for patients with autoimmune hemolytic anemia during pregnancy. Severe hemolysis and a considerable relapse rate were seen in this multicenter cohort. Maternal outcomes were favorable compared to healthy controls, but the rate of serious fetal and neonatal complications was increased. Up next, rapid immune tolerance induction in patients with hemophilia A and high titer inhibitors. In a single-arm prospective study of recombinant factor 8-FC fusion protein, nearly two-thirds of patients achieved tolerance in less than 12 weeks. Responses were durable and treatment was well-tolerated. Finally, researchers compare kinetics and cell cycle progression in hematopoietic stem cells from cord blood, young adults, and aged healthy donors. They found that aged hematopoietic stem cells were less sensitive to stimulation by growth factors and were more difficult to activate versus young hematopoietic stem cells. Our first research article is Autoimmune Hemolytic Anemia During Pregnancy and Purparium, an International Multicenter Experience. And the first author is Bruno Fatizo of Fondazione IRCCS Cagranda Ospedal Maggiore Policlinico in Milan, Italy. It has long been known that pregnancy is associated with perturbations of the immune system. Anti-erythrocyte antibodies occur in about 1 in 50,000 pregnancies, and some of those patients will develop autoimmune hemolytic anemia, or AIHA. AIHA is a rare event in pregnancy, and both treatments and outcomes are not well described. Now, Fatizo and co-authors provide some insights into the AIHA in pregnancy and in perparium, which is to say up to six weeks after childbirth. Their retrospective study includes patients in 12 tertiary hematology centers in Europe and the United States. All of the centers had expertise in the diagnosis and management of AIHA. They looked specifically at women of childbearing potential who either had AIHA diagnosed before pregnancy or had de novo AIHA during pregnancy or puparium. A control group consisted of 56 healthy pregnant women randomly selected at one of the participating centers in the study. Overall, they found that among women with AIHA diagnosed at childbearing age, the relapse rate following a new pregnancy was high. Out of 45 of such pregnant women, relapses of AIHA were seen among 23, or 51%. Cases of de novo AIHA in pregnant women without a previous history of AIHA were exceedingly rare. Only 13 cases were documented, making up just 0.03% of nearly 49,000 registered pregnancies. Investigators were able to obtain detailed clinical laboratory data for a total of 45 pregnancies. Those pregnancies occurred in 33 women, of whom 20 had an AIHA diagnosis predating pregnancy, and 13 who developed de novo AIHA during gestation or puparium. Investigators observed a total of 24 hemolytic events during pregnancy or puparium, occurring at a median of 20.5 gestational weeks in the case of the events during pregnancy, and at a median of 6 weeks from delivery in the case of events during puparium. The events were all severe, with hemoglobin values ranging from 3.1 to 8.7 grams per deciliter. All patients required treatment. 96% of patients received prompt steroid therapy, with or without intravenous immunoglobulin, while 58% received blood transfusions. Fortunately, all patients responded to treatment. 65% had a complete response to therapy, defined as a hemoglobin of 12 grams per deciliter or greater. 
The rest had a partial response to therapy, meaning either a hemoglobin of at least 10 or an increase of at least 2 grams per deciliter from baseline. About a third of patients received antithrombotic prophylaxis. No cases of venous thromboembolism were documented, though the overall number of pregnancies in this study was small, precluding definitive conclusions on the benefit of prophylaxis. Maternal complications were seen in 15% of pregnancies, including premature rupture of membranes, placental detachment, and preeclampsia. Early miscarriages occurred in 13% of pregnancies. However, investigators said that was similar to the maternal complication rate seen in their control group of healthy pregnant women. By contrast, the rate of fetal adverse events was significantly elevated. Investigators found fetal complications in 22% of the cases, versus just 5% in the control group. Fetal adverse events, 22% of cases, included respiratory distress, fetal growth restriction, preterm birth, AIHA of the newborn, and two prenatal deaths. In a commentary published in Blood, Ariel L. Longer of Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston said this large cohort study provides much-needed insight into the expected course, therapeutic options, and outcomes of AIHA in pregnancy. While maternal outcomes were favorable, Longer said, the study also revealed an increase in the rate of serious fetal and neonatal complications. In addition, the current study can inform patient counseling, for example, with regard to the need for treatment and the types of treatment needed. Overall, the study authors concluded that their work provides new insights into pregnancy outcomes in AIHA. The study does not allow for specific recommendations, they said. However, the results at least show that AIHA does not preclude a healthy pregnancy, as long as there is close monitoring, prompt treatment, and awareness of the potential for maternal and fetal complications. Listeners, CME questions for this article are available on the Blood website at cme.bloodjournal.org. The next research article is entitled Recombinant Factor 8 FC Fusion Protein for First-Time Immune Tolerance Induction. Final results of the Verity 8 study. The first author is Lynn Malik of the Versity Blood Research Institute in Wisconsin. The treatment of hemophilia A with clotting factor replacement therapy is challenging due to the development of neutralizing antibodies in about 30% of patients. These antibodies react with and inhibit infused factor 8 replacement products. The standard treatment for eradication of inhibitors is immune tolerance induction, or ITI. This approach entails frequent factor VIII infusions over a prolonged period, at least nine months, and possibly two years or more. Although ITI can effectively restore factor VIII sensitivity, it is intensive and burdensome to patients and caregivers. An ITI is not always successful. In a prospective international study called IITI, Standard half-life factor VIII ITI treatment regimens given weekly or three times per week had an overall success rate of 70%, but the success rate was only 40% in the intent-to-treat population. Even with the higher-dose approach, median time to tolerance was nearly two years. By contrast, shorter times to negative inhibitor titer may be possible with the use of fmoroctocog alpha, a recombinant factor VIII immunoglobulin FC fusion protein with an extended half-life in patient's plasma. In a retrospective review of charts from 10 patients undergoing first-time ITI with fmoroctocog alpha, the success rate was 80%. The median time to tolerization was 30 weeks, with a range of 3 to 99 weeks. Subsequently, prospective phase 4 studies were developed to evaluate fmoroctocog alpha. One was REITERATE, a study of fmoroctocog alpha used as rescue ITI. 
Results of that study suggested a potential clinical benefit in patients who failed previous ITI attempts. Now, we have data from a study of f alpha as first-time ITI patients with severe hemophilia A and inhibitors. The Phase 4 open-label single-arm interventional study, known as Verity 8, was conducted at multiple centers in North America and Europe. The primary outcome of Verity 8 was time to tolerization, or ITI success, with up to 48 weeks of treatment. ITI success was defined as achieving an inhibitor titer less than 0.6 Bethesda units per milliliter, recombinant factor 8 FC incremental recovery to at least 66% of expected incremental recovery, and a half-life of at least 7 hours. Following the ITI period of the study, patients who achieved tolerization entered a tapering period and then follow-up. A total of 16 subjects, up to age 16, completed the study. The median age was 2.1 years, with a range of 0.8 to 16 years. Many patients had high-risk features, including high-risk mutations in the factor VIII gene, high historical peak titers, and a long interval between inhibitor diagnosis and ITI. Fmoroctocog alpha was initially given at 200 international units per kilogram per day, adjusted individually to maintain peak factor VIII activity levels. 12 of 16 patients, or 75%, achieved a negative inhibitor status, including 11, or 69%, who achieved an incremental recovery of at least 66% of expected, and 10, or 63%, who achieved a half-life of 7 hours within the 48-week ITI period. The median time to achieve those three endpoint components was 7.4 weeks, 6.8 weeks, and 11.7 weeks, respectively. So, going by the study definition, tolerance was achieved in a median of 11.7 weeks. Most bleeds were seen during the ITI treatment period. Using the study definitions of response, the median time to tolerance was a remarkably short time of 11.7 weeks. Then the annualized bleed rate was a median of 0 with a range of 0 to 2.4 in tapering, and again 0 with a range of 0 to 1.5 in follow-up. Fmoroctocog alpha was well tolerated although all subjects experienced at least one treatment-emergent adverse event. All were mild to moderate in severity, except for three, which included vascular device infection, mouth injury, and arthropathy. There were no thrombotic events, serious allergic reactions, or deaths in the study. In a published commentary on this study, Eric Berntorp of Lund University in Sweden said recombinant factor VIII FC fusion protein has demonstrated rapid eradication of inhibitors with a success rate on par with several other studies. He said the Verity 8 study results are favorable, though not conclusive, noting that the findings need to be interpreted in light of some common issues in ITI studies. These include the limited population size and lack of a control group, a dosing level that may not be optimal, and a definition of time to tolerization that is internationally accepted but may lead to wrong classification of intolerance in select patients. Nevertheless, Berntorp said, it seems reasonable to believe that time to tolerization in this study is indeed short by comparison to other studies, including the aforementioned international ITI study. However, research continues apace, and there are now studies incorporating emicizumab into ITI strategies, and the use of non-replacement therapies, such as gene or cellular therapies, are changing the treatment landscape. In the meantime, Berntorp concluded, Inhibitors continue to cause substantial cost and suffering, underscoring the need to continue the search for ITI strategies that are rapid and have high rates of success. The final article is 
Aging alters the cell cycle control and mitogenic signaling responses of human hematopoietic stem cells. It's from Colin A. Hammond and co-authors from the British Columbia Cancer Agency and University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. We know that hematopoietic stem cells, or HSCs, have an extensive capacity to renew, which is critical to regeneration of the blood systems throughout life. However, the self-renewal potential of HSCs gradually decreases with age. Initially, HSCs exist in a rapidly cycling state. Within the first three years of life, most HSCs switch to a quiescent state, where they are continuously, but not infrequently, recruited into the cell cycle. But when needed, for example, due to an insult such as inflammation, HSCs may awake and divide based on mitogenic signals from the microenvironment. Waking HSCs relies on signaling pathways related to cell cycle entry and progression. These processes are initiated by growth factors, leading to activation of pathways, including AKT signaling. And AKT signaling is known to regulate cell survival, growth, and transition from the quiescent G0 state to the G1 phase, as well as transition from the G1 to S phase. However, little is known about how the mechanisms to wake up HSCs may be impacted by the aging process. Through a series of single-cell analyses of human HSCs, Hammond and co-investigators provide new insights into how aging impacts mitogenic signaling and cell cycle control. The studies are focused on the CD49F-positive subset of CD34-positive hematopoietic cells, a phenotype known to be highly enriched for cells that have long-term repopulating activity in vivo. The investigations provide evidence that aging negatively affects the mitogenic responses of these cells. Specifically, investigators look at human CD49F-positive cells obtained from cord blood, as well as younger and older adult bone marrow sources. Altogether, these samples spanned seven decades of age. They measure the response of these cells to stimulation with mitogenic growth factors, both at the functional and molecular level, and looked at their regenerative activity in vivo in transplanted mice. In the initial experiments, the primitive CD49F-positive cells were isolated and cultured on mouse stroma cells designed to support the survival and differentiation of human HSCs. Investigators observed a delay in colony growth that was related to donor age, but with little to no alterations in differentiation. In subsequent analyses, they found that age-associated differences in proliferation were associated with reduced activation of AKT and a progressive delay in the ability of these initially quiescent cells to enter and advance through the cell cycle. Although CD49F-positive cells from all sources displayed robust AKT activation in response to growth factor stimulation, the response was reduced and shorter in duration in adult cells, and even more so in the older adult cells. The CD49-positive cells exhibited a progressive age-related elongation of the G1 phase, and in the older adult cells, the CD49F-positive cells stayed in both G0 and G1 for prolonged time periods. Altogether, the findings suggested a model in which aging HSCs are desensitized to stimulation with growth factors due to loss of AKT signaling, elongation of the G1 cell cycle, and reduced proliferation, with the changes exaggerated in the most aged HSCs due to delayed exit from the G0 phase. In a commentary also appearing in Blood, Dick Loeffler of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and the University of Tennessee Health Science Center said these findings demonstrate that, compared to young HSCs, aged HSCs are less sensitive to growth factor stimulation and more difficult to activate. Interestingly, Loeffler says, 
The delay is inherited by HSC daughters, which suggests that age-related changes in HSC proliferation are regulated cell-intrinsically. Despite these novel insights on the effect of aging on human HSC behavior, more work needs to be done to understand the specific molecular changes that lead to reduced sensitivity to mitogenic signals. Loeffler explains that while a reduction in AKT signaling was seen in aged HSCs, it remains unclear what exactly causes the drop in AKT phosphorylation and desensitization to growth factors. Overall, more work is needed to understand how aging affects the behavior of HSCs and whether growth factor sensitivity can be restored and study of signaling in mutant HSCs may provide insights into the early steps of disease pathogenesis. Altogether, it's hoped that a better understanding of how age impacts HSC signaling dynamics, heterogeneity, and crosstalk will inform the development of novel culture strategies to expand and rejuvenate HSCs. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.